Welcome to another episode of The Quantified Body. I'm your host, Damien Blinkensop. Today, we're looking at a new tool, which is kind of hitting the headlines at the moment. TDCS, that's transcranial direct current stimulation. What this involves is applying electricity to specific areas of the brain to enhance learning. And the upside can be quite big. It can double our rate of learning a new skill. This has been shown in some studies. It can also reduce symptoms of brain health issues like dementia, or ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. The tracking we'll be looking at in this episode is how to use different forms of brain scans, such as MRI, fMRI, and something called magnetoencephalography to understand the impact that TDCS is really having. Because currently, there's a lot of people starting to use this technology. If you see there's a DIY community, there's also a lot of devices now out there. But the question is, how safe is this? So tracking becomes even more paramount in these kind of situations where we don't really understand the long-term impacts of the technology. And this is what today's guest has been doing, using precise scanning technologies to understand how TDCS is really working and to optimize its impacts on our learning curve. So Michael Weissend, PhD, is a pioneer in the research and application of TDCS. He is nationally recognized for his expertise in the neurophysiology of learning, cognition, and memory. He has authored over 50 scientific publications and worked on a broad range of applications of TDCS with organizations such as the Air Force Research Laboratory, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, better known as, and the National Institutes of Health, NIH. Bison specifically uses functional imaging technologies such as the MRI and fMRI that I just mentioned to maximize the benefits and safety of TDCS. So this is a really, really interesting topic. It's kind of hot at the moment. And I wanted to cut through a bit of the hype, you know, that surrounds that. There's a lot of people trying stuff out and there's a lot of questions as to whether it is really beneficial or not. And when we really look at the tracking, deep into the tracking, that's where you start to understand what's really going on. And Michael Weissen really has a wealth of experience to really understand where it's working and where it's not. To get the show notes with links and the MP3 download, transcript, everything like that, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and pick this episode out to get everything there. If you want to get the show notes in your inbox every time an episode comes out, just go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there and you'll receive them every time it comes out. Hope you enjoyed the interview. I've been thinking about testing TDCS myself for a while now, but I really wanted to get to the bottom of the safety issues and understand the upside and downsides of it before I went into that. And Michael really was a great person to talk to about this because I find he has a very balanced view of the technology. So I hope you'll get some good understanding and takeaways from this also. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Michael, thank you so much for making time for the show. Oh, you're welcome. No problem. How can I help? Yeah, I think you can help with clarifying a lot of crazy stuff. So to define what you've been doing, it sounds like it's basically you've worked with a lot of different neuroimaging technologies in order to find out how to apply TDCS technologies to accelerate learning. Is that a fair summary of what you've been up to? Yeah. When I do 
uh, work on the brain stimulation stuff, I always assume at the outset that I'm dumb, not that I'm smart. And so the way that you need to approach stimulating the brain in order to enhance performance is to match the places in the brain that are active with the places in the brain that are being stimulated in order to uh, maximize the effect. So we have used uh, magnetoencephalography that measures the magnetic fields that your brain generates when it becomes active. We have used EEG, which measures the electrical part of brain activity. And then we've also used structural and functional MRI. Structural MRI gives us a picture of the brain, and functional MRI gives us a picture of the brain that includes the places where you are using oxygen in order to support uh, brain activity. Great. Your goal is to see which parts of the brain is active and try and stimulate the same parts to kind of emphasize activity in those areas. Is that correct? That's right. So what we do is we examine the brain in two conditions. So in the first condition, you want something that is not optimal. So it could be tired, it could be inattentive, it could be a novice. And then we measure the brain in a second condition. So you could measure it when somebody's performing at expert level after a bunch of training. Or you could perform the neuroimaging after a good night's sleep. Or you could image when somebody's paying very good attention. Then you take those two images and you subtract them. Once you subtract them, you have the essential difference between the two brain states. And for us, that is where, that's where we have targeted our brain stimulation, is to find the difference between brain states and try to target stimulation in order to aid in the transition from an undesirable brain state to one that is more desirable. Great. To give the audience a broad idea of what this could be applied to, I saw a TEDx presentation where you outlined, I think it was five different applications you saw as viable. I understand that not all of them have been attempted yet, potentially, but what were those and which ones have you actually already attempted to or done some work on and it's been effective? So we have mainly focused on learning in my lab. We've also done some work with vigilance and we're about to start work with subjects who have traumatic brain injuries and lingering symptoms from those. The, in the TEDx talk, I was trying to make things very understandable to the general population because as a neuro nerd, we kind of talk in code sometimes, stuff that's, that's not understandable to everybody. Not because they're uh, less smart, it's just that we have different vocabularies because we walk in different shoes every day. One of the places where I think that TDCS will have an impact in the very near future is in depression. So there's some very good work out of the National Institute of Health in uh, Washington, D.C., and out of several labs in Sao Paulo, Brazil, who say that you can alleviate the effects of depression by stimulating the cortex between your ear and your eye, kind of on the top of your head. We call it dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And it's been pretty effective. So some of the other areas uh, you noted down, just for example, uh, which you've already kind of mentioned, was uh, being tired, being stressed, which of, of course is a huge thing these days. Who, is, who isn't stressed? And we, we hear a lot about the health impacts of that. Uh, so that's an interesting thing. Uh, slow, being slow, being forgetful. And you've mentioned sad and depression. And then even treatment 
or certain brain disorders or diseases potentially. Yes. So this is kind of looking at the future and your TEDx presentation was aimed at the layman. And I thought you did a great job. Uh, it's very understandable, um, even by me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think you achieved that objective. I, I encourage the listeners to go check that out. Before potentially you listen to this, it might be a, a good intro to get started with. I thought what we do now is like take a little step back and talk about TDCS. What is TDCS? Where did it come from? How long has it been around? What's kind of the basis of for using this versus some other potentially similar technologies? Why are you focused on this one? I can tell you what we're mainly focused on it, and that's because it's inexpensive and it's very light and it uh, could be put into a wearable for uh, just about anybody. So where did it come from? Well, Luigi Galvani, back in the 1700s, used to shuffle around on the carpet and generate static electricity and then touch the nerves that were attached to frog muscle in order to demonstrate that electricity caused the muscles to move it. And there's even some data, data, there's some stories, some anecdotes from the ancient Greeks and Romans where electrical fish, uh, electric eels, were uh, touched to people's heads in order to get rid of headaches. So we're not talking about something new here. This has been around, it was used in the 1800s to try to cure paralysis. Some very good work was done on this in the 1960s that we rely on still today. But there's been a dramatic enhancement in or dramatic increase in the number of publications, I think primarily due to the fact that we have now abilities based on neuroimaging, look into the brain and actually do a really good job of trying to place current into critical brain structures for tasks, specific tasks, instead of kind of taking a guess at where those critical pieces of brain might be and placing electrodes in uh, locations on the head that are based on lesions and literature. So the lesions and literature approach will get you so far, right? So the lesions and literature approach uh, more or less is the idea that if you take a piece of brain out and a function stops, so for example, speech stops, or being able to move your hand stops, then there's this kind of fallacious idea that that function resides in that spot. And so people have turned that on its head and said, well, if function resides in that spot, and we put electricity into that spot, we should change the function of movement or speech or what have you. But there's a problem with that. And if you want to think about this in a kind of a colloquial way, let's talk about where right turn is in a car, right? Is it in the driver's brain? Is it in the driver's hands? Is it in the steering wheel? Is it in the steering linkage? Is it, is it in the front wheels, right? Where exactly is it? And so in that case, that's a lot like the brain, because in order for you to speak, there have to be a whole bunch of areas working together. And in order for you to move your hand, there's a whole bunch of areas that are working together. Function does not reside in one single spot in the brain. Behavior is supported by a network of areas that work together. That's very interesting. So are you talking there about the connections between, say, the hand and the brain? And these days we also hear about the, the gut-brain axis and the relationship between the gut and the brain. Of course, you're focused on specific areas of the brain, but do you think one day that we would be looking at stimulating other parts in tandem? I understand that you're not stimulating the hand and the brain at the same time in, in your work. You're, you're focusing on the brain. So could you sort of extrapolate a little that idea? 
exactly what you are talking about now, where you stimulate in the periphery in order to influence the central nervous system or influence the connection between the brain and the central nervous system, is right now the topic of a DARPA request for grant proposals. So it's called the Electrics, E-L-E-C-T-R-X program or Electrics program. And they're looking for a couple of things. One, what are the biomarkers that you might monitor in order to know that something's amiss in a system? And two, what are the pieces of equipment or the gizmos that you might use to monitor and then interact with the system electrically in order to change function? I just thought of like an analogy at home for people that might bring home because they've probably seen so many info commercials on TV. The, you know, the old electricity stimulated ab belts people would wear to get abs, six-pack six ab machines. I'm not sure if they ever worked, but is that exactly the same technology? Uh, it's not the same exact technology. So TGCS is something that turns on and stays on at a steady uh, rate. So if we, if we say two milliamps, it uh, comes on slowly, comes up to two milliamps, stays at two milliamps for a uh, period of time, and then ramps back down to zero. The ab machines, or if you go to PT, they do they can do this too. It is uh, physical therapy. They can stimulate your muscles in order to make them move uh, to break up spasms and stuff like this. And those machines work on an AC current, or an AC current is one that alternates up and down. It's like the electricity that comes out of your wall socket, but at a very low, low, low level, right? You wouldn't want to try this by sticking wires into a wall socket. You'd kill yourself. And that AC current can ramp up quickly and ramp down quickly. And it's that ramp up quickly and ramp down quickly that causes the contraction of the muscles. So do muscles work rather than an on-off basis? They work on an AC because it goes negative, positive, yeah. What you're essentially doing there is you're causing the AC current causes the release of neurotransmitters at the neuromuscular junction. So at the place where the nerves come into the muscle, there's a gap between the end of the nerve and the beginning of the muscle. And there's a substance that travels across that gap to cause the muscle to contract. It's called acetylcholine. It's a what's called a neurotransmitter. And so the electricity the AC current simply causes that acetylcholine to be released and the muscle to contract based on hey, the same mechanism that it would if you if impulses came down the nerve. Great, great. Thank you for the clarification. Now, coming back to the brain. So we're using TDCS, which is a, a direct current. And roughly how much time do you typically apply for it, or does it really vary according to what you're doing? And what is the reasoning for a direct versus an AC it's a constant stimulation versus intermittent stimulation of the brain. What's the reasoning behind that? There are people who use AC currents on the brain. Uh, those also cause changes in behavior. We use DC current in this case because the way we think TDCS works is that instead of directly causing activity in the brain, what TDCS appears to do is to essentially turn the amplifier up or the volume up just a little bit on the brain areas that are receiving stimulation from the outside world. So when I think about this, I think about two terms, right? One is 
endogenous stimulation, which means from a natural inside the, a natural pathway, and exogenous stimulation, which is from outside and maybe not through a natural pathway. So if you take TDCS, it is an exogenous type of stimulation where you put it on the head, electricity goes, a whole bunch of it goes through the scalp and a little teeny bit of it gets through the skull and into brain. And that little tiny bit causes the neurons, we think, to be slightly more reactive when there are stimuli coming in through endogenous pathways like the eyes and the ears and smell and et cetera, et cetera, uh, touch, right? So in that case, you get a slightly larger reaction in the brain to stimuli that are coming in through endogenous pathways as a result of this exogenous TDCS stimulation. With the AC current, you're doing something different. So the AC current, essentially, if you put in a sine wave, a sine wave is just a fancy word for a something that goes up and down equally around zero amps or zero volts, then what you do is you entrain rhythms in the brain. So if the stimulation is at 10 hertz, means the stimulation is going up and down 10 times per second, then you will, in the brain, get a sympathetic rhythm at 10 hertz, which is either enhanced in amplitude or generated de novo from whole cloth. And so in that way, you have to, with TACS, which is the alternating current, you have to know that first that you're getting electricity into the right areas, but then you also have to know that 10 hertz is important for your task or 12 hertz or 40 hertz or whatever what you're going to put in. So again, we go back to this place where I assume I'm dumb. And what I do is I put in the simplest thing I can think of. And in this case, it was DC current that would enhance the reaction to naturally incurring stimuli in the environment without the baggage of having to know now not only uh, where to put it, but also what frequency is important uh, the task. So it just starts getting more and more complicated as you start adding in things like oscillations and oscillations, random noise. There's a variety of things you could add in. Basically, it makes more sense to focus on TDCS because there's less variables involved at this stage. And it sounds like we're still on the kind of cutting edge. And to introduce more variables is just going to make the task that much more difficult to actually use effectively or to make research stop paying off in terms of coming up with answers. Is that the theory? Yeah, that's uh, exactly. I prefer to keep it as simple as possible and try to work out the simple stuff before we walk, before you can run. Exactly. Great, great. I think people have also heard of different frequencies of waves in the brain. Iron Amuse, this uh, device, EEG, consumer device you probably heard of, and that tracks some of the different frequencies, alpha, theta, delta, delta waves in the brain. So we were just talking about some frequencies. Are they related? Because it sounds like when you wear these EEG devices that it's tracking the whole brain, right? It's like a, we're having the same wave, frequency of waves throughout our whole brain. But it sounded like when you were just talking about this, that we could have different waves in different areas of the brain, and it's actually a lot more complex. So what is the kind of model that exists today? Different frequencies are thought to do different things, and it's most clearly seen in sleep. So in waking, you have beta activity, alpha activity, 
gamma activity all across the spectrum. But when you go into sleep, you go through periods where you drop out lots and lots of the other frequencies and you get delta, which is one to four hertz. And then when you dream, uh, when most people dream, you come back up and your brain almost looks awake again. And then you drop into this delta. So uh, what do the different frequencies mean? Well, there's all kinds of theories out there, but I would say one that I think has really kind of held water for a while is that the oscillations are the way that different pieces of brain talk to one another. Okay, so if you are engaging this network that we talked about before, like left turn in a car, you have to have oscillations that are complementary in pieces of that network that are talking to one another. And it might not be that they're the exact same frequency, but it's important that they happen together. So you might see alpha or beta activity in the uh, occipital lobe when you are imaging, when you're looking through an image, and that might elicit gamma activity in the frontal lobe or the temporal lobe. But they are temporally related, and they are related by what's called phase, where when the cycle of one is going up, the cycles of the others are in a specific relationship to that. They could also be going up or that it could be driving that phase down. Okay. It sounds uh, pretty complex. Um, oh, it's the most sophisticated math in neuroscience right now is trying to figure this out. Okay. Right. So again, focusing on just uh, stimulation versus non-stimulation versus all, all the different frequencies. You used a variety of neuroimaging technologies to try and target which areas were effective for which tasks. Which tasks have you been looking at? Like which kind of case studies have you worked on to give people an idea of what kind of applications um, in learning you've been looking at? We have done a lot of work for the U.S. Air Force. And the U.S. Air Force has images to look through for targets of interest that you might want to track, you might want to forget about whatever that is going on on that day. So in order to think about what is that game really about, it's really like where's Waldo, right? So let's say that you are looking for a specific individual. If you're looking for a specific individual, you've got to go through hours and hours and hours of imagery in order to complete that search. So the things that are critical to completing that search are vigilance, knowing what the target looks like, knowing what the target looks like when it might be uh, disguised. So we've looked at all that kinds of stuff to see if we can get people to essentially play the Where's Waldo game for a very long period of time. And in that period of time, make fewer errors in terms of either losing the target or misidentifying a target or kind of falling off the wagon in terms of attention. All of those things are what we've looked at primarily. We're working now with people who have traumatic brain injury. And in this case, we're looking with we're looking at veterans who have traumatic brain injury. In those veterans with traumatic brain injury, they report uh, lingering symptoms in terms of memory, attention. And that's why we think we can have an effect is because we can, in a healthy person, we can have the effect on memory and attention. And so we're now going to try to push that stuff out to people who really need it to get back to a space where they can function in society as a healthy person instead of trying to enhance the abilities of already healthy people. 
So when you're talking about injuries, is it structural damage or is this uh, post-traumatic stress disorders or is it kind of a variety of different symptoms reported which aren't necessarily structural? So there's not like bits of the brain actually missing or atrophied or, or is it a range of different conditions? So it's a range of different conditions. It's almost always the case that somebody who has lingering symptoms after a traumatic brain injury has at least... Uh, damage that is subtle, it might not be visible on conventional CT scanning, CAT scanning, or conventional MRI. But if you do some highly detailed and highly specialized scans, it is often noticeable. And that one of those techniques in MRI is called diffusion tensor imaging. The brain is connected one end to the other and uh, side to side by fluid-filled tubes called axons. And those axons carry electricity from one piece of the brain to the other in this network, like we talked about, for right turning a car. So you can imagine that your car wouldn't turn very well if you pulled part of the linkage apart that moves the front wheels. So you could turn the wheel all you wanted, but the front wheels might not respond. So in people with traumatic brain injury or lingering symptoms, a specialized test called diffusion tensor imaging can often reveal that damage to the network, which is not obvious in more conventional, easily done turnkey or canned scans that you would get at your local hospital. Let's talk about the different ways you're quantifying changes here. Just to give people, are we talking mostly about functional versus structural? Is the important thing you see is the functional aspect? Or because... The structural technologies I think most people are used to are the CT scan, the MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, which basically gives you a map of the structure of the brain. If you add a bit of contrast, some, some it'll, it'll come up with some of the white matter, which is still basically the structure of the brain. It doesn't necessarily say which bits are active versus which bits are non-active. And in technological language, uh, they say functional in terms of trying to understand how the brain's actually working, whether it's active or non-active. So is most of the work you're doing looking at understanding whether it's active or non-active, or are you also looking at the structural changes? Because another thing that comes into this is plasticity and neuroplasticity, which has been, over the last 10 years, has become something, been a few book, bestseller books about this. And it's kind of been quite hopeful in terms of saying, you know, if we do get structural damage, then we have this ability to regrow, redevelop, and over time we can develop our brains and so it kind of gives us this uh, optimistic look of the brain that, we, you know, we can kind of adapt it and grow it the way we want to. I guess the other question behind this is also when you're stimulating it, are you actually affecting neuroplasticity and trying to emphasize an area of the brain to actually grow structurally? So there's a lot of questions all wrapped up in one. I don't know if you can remember all of them. Yeah. <laughs> questions in there, but let's, let's start by the difference between structure and function. So structure is looking at your TV or computer monitor. There's a nice space there, and the reason that uh, light appears in the specific places it does is because of the way it's wired internally. But without function, the picture is black, right? You don't have a picture. When we look at function, what we're doing is we're looking at the places, not only locations, which are defined by anatomically, but by the when those little pixels in the brain, the areas in the brain that are analogous to the pixels, turn on and off as a result of either being stimulated or sensing information in the environment 
processing that information and then acting upon that information. So those are the three places where we can actually target stimulation, where you sense, where you process, and where you act. You might think it is the case that if we were going to try to influence behavior, what we would we could pick one of those things to look at. So you might try to say, uh, let's pe- make people more sensitive to differences in light and dark. Maybe that'll help them play Where's Waldo. Or let's take what's more critical is pressing a button fast. So then you might look at the place where people act. Or you might say, what's most important is how you interpret the information. And so then you might target stimulation to look at where it is being processed in the brain. So now if we move on to one of the next questions, which I'm sorry, I've forgotten. So we were we were talking about... I threw in plasticity in there as well. Neuroplasticity is a fancy term or something that is very simple. And that is a change in the brain that sticks. No more complicated than that. And we call changes in the brain that stick, we call that learning. So neuroplasticity is a way that the brain captures information and holds it to change behavior. Okay. With neuroplasticity, how does that work? So let's think about how that works first. So there's an old adage, and as far as we know, it's still true. It was first written about in 1949 in a book by Donald Hebb. He said this in very fancy terms, but what it boils down to it cells that fire together wire together okay so if you think about pavlov's dog pavlov's dog learned to salivate to the sound of a bell in anticipation of food being given to him so how does that work well it only works actually if the bell and the food are presented together so once you have the bell and the food presented together a few times then what you have is the bell starts to cause salivation, just like the food caused salivation. And it's when those two things are presented together, the brain changes its wiring to connect them so that you can now change behavior. So what the heck does TDCS have to do with any of this, right? So now think about what we talked about before, where we said, when you stimulate the brain, you make it more reactive to the uh, natural environmental stimuli. So when it's more reactive, you have a greater number, at least in theory, a greater number of cells that are active, and you have additional opportunities for this plasticity to take place because more cells firing, more cells wiring, and a more rapid acquisition of information that you can measure by changing behavior. So it's basically encouraging a certain area to take the lead in the process of when the brain's operating, you're encouraging one area to take the lead versus another. Yeah, I think that's a good way to summarize it. All right. <laughs> Man- <laughs> all, that, many- all that fancy crap wasn't good. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for all these clarifications. It's great. So what, which technologies have you played around with and which do you think are the best for what you're trying to achieve here? The one that I saw mentioned one time was the functional MRI. Another one was the MEG, which is something I hadn't heard of before, actually. EEG. 
I saw it as well, which I feel like was an older technology and not as accurate, but I, but I don't know, you know, that's could be just like branding and marketing and it's got into my head and it's fired the neurons in, <laughs> in that kind of area. So I feel that way. So when you're looking at these technologies, which do you feel are the most useful for your work at the moment? And is that going to develop soon in, into different ways? Are you going to be look, using different, more accurate technologies, which is going to be able to further this kind of work? Yeah, so I prefer magnetoencephalography to the other techniques for a couple of reasons. So magnetoencephalography measures the magnetic energy that your brain generates. When you think about electrical activity, electrical activity is always accompanied by magnetism. So you can use your right hand to visualize this. If you uh, point with your thumb at something and imagine there's an electric current running along your thumb on your right hand, then there's always a magnetic field that wraps around any current that would travel in the direction of your thumb. There's always a magnetic field that wraps around it in the direction that your fingers naturally curl on your right hand. So with EEG, what we're measuring is that electrical current that's running along your thumb. With MEG, what we're measuring is that magnetic field that is wrapping around your thumb. So why would we do that? The technology is way more expensive and way more difficult to maintain. The reason we do that is because your scalp and skull are transparent to magnetic fields, but your scalp and skull are opaque or mostly opaque to electrical energy. Okay, so anything you see with EEG is kind of blurry and smeared out, but the things you see with MEG are very clear reflection of what's going on in the brain. But it comes with a cost. Everything comes with, there's no free lunch. Everything comes with a cost. So MEG has a lot more information. And as long as you take the time to figure that out, then you can learn additional things about the brain. But in some cases, it's too much information. It's one piece of brain talking on top of another piece of brain on top of another piece of brain. And it's very difficult to sort out. So EEG gives you kind of an oversimplified picture. MEG gives you an overly detailed picture. And there's no Goldilocks area there where this one's just right. You lay down your bets and you go with one or the other. I err on the side, again, that I'm dumb. And so I want the maximum information I can get to try to learn the most. And so that's why I prefer MEG. Great. And as you said, it's a lot more expensive and it's newer. Yeah. And yeah. You haven't mentioned fMRI. I'm guessing that you're not using that so much. And fMRI is very different, right? It's about blood flow and blood oxygen oxygenation levels that obviously is a very different approach to tracking function is so you do say that as relevant because obviously in the press these days functional mris are the big thing in terms of behaviors and impact and pretty much all the brain studies that are reported these days it contains these fmris so how do you look at that and why don't you use those uh, it seems like you don't use those yeah functional mri i do a little bit not a lot but i'll tell you i have a couple of issues with meg or i'm sorry with fmri one is it's not a direct measure of neural activity. It's an indirect measure of neural activity. Having said that, it is also has very good spatial localization of activity, uh, superior to MEG or EEG. If what you're about is all spatial, then there's you can't get better than fMRI. What I argue is that not only is the spatial location of stuff important, we also get 
the on and the off and the frequency and all that stuff with MEG and EEG. So I just I just feel like there's more information there and I prefer them for that reason. So basically blood flow moves slower than electricity and activation. So you're you're looking at the thing that's moving the fastest and you know the as you're saying, it's the first measure rather than a secondary proxy. Yeah. Great. Neurons turn on and off or can turn and off hundreds of times a second. And so MEG and EEG can both measure that. But fMRI, the maximum time resolution is on the order of seconds. So if you use the analogy of the ocean, if you take a picture and you see the waves coming in, that's MEG, EEG. If you took a film and then averaged it all together so that there were no waves, right? All you got was the general level of the water. That's fMRI. So all of these technologies we're talking about, EEG is used in the consumer world today. But fMRI and um, MEG aren't because they're just damn expensive, so they're not used for diagnostics as yet. In terms of that, how applicable are they? Because we do this research with them. Is the research you find directly applicable to everyone? So if you analyze someone in the military, you analyze his brain. And we were just talking about plasticity. And when they talk about plasticity, they often talk about how sometimes different areas of the brain could be doing the same thing. So I was wondering, do you feel like everyone's brain, there's this kind of a standard you can rely on. If you establish a pattern by analyzing 10 people in the military, can you now say that that if you want to work on that same activity, that same task, and improve the learning, could you now apply that pattern you've established to anyone in the world? Or are there limitations to how broad this can be applied? Well, this is going to depend on your task, right? So if, if you're interested in where is the piece of brain that moves the finger, that's pretty standard across different people. If you are interested in languages, like reading languages, well, that's pretty uniform in the Western Hemisphere. But in the Eastern Hemisphere, where characters are more prevalent, it's a little less like Western Hemisphere stuff. And if you are now interested in what makes this person more reactive to, more anxious than the next person, now we're talking about each individual person, learning about each individual person. So it really kind of depends on your question, what level of detail you need to go into in the analysis. For us, we've tried to focus on things that are on the level of language, where we can get good generalization across people of a similar cultural background. Great. Well, let's talk about some of the, the thing, specific results you've, you've seen, because we talked a lot about all the modalities. Now, what's the kind of rewards you've seen for uh, this activity? What kind of improvements have you seen compared to controls? What benefits do you basically see in this technology that you've actually kind of proven and carried out case studies and research and, and you got the data behind them? So we've replicated several times that we can, by careful placement of TDCS and implementation in a specific task, we can double the rate of learning in a where's Waldo type task. Another thing, a very good colleague of mine who works at the Air Force Base, Andy McKinley, has recently demonstrated that you can give people the same, people who are sleep deprived, the exact same benefit as a cup of coffee by doing brain stimulation. One of the interesting things about that is that and I alluded to this in my TEDx talk, was you don't have all the effects on the liver and the kidneys and the lungs and the brain, the liver, with brain stimulation that you might have by taking a drug to influence being tired. 
So when you drink a cup of coffee and you are benefiting from the wakefulness that's provided by the caffeine, there's as much caffeine in your elbow as there is in your brain. And what we do with TDCS really is take the elbow out of the equation and direct the stimulation at the organ that is most responsible for behavior. That's great because, I mean, caffeine is a great example there. I myself am a bit tired. I'm jet lagged from travel. So I've had a couple of coffees today. And I also have documented adrenal fatigue. So it's not the best idea for me. Um, <laughs> but for me, if, if it was kind of proven that I could use a TDCS unit at the moment while I'm fixing my adrenals, it probably would be a pretty wise idea because then I could like quit coffee and use TDCS when I had to get some work done. Right. And so for you, is it applicable for people at home? Can they have a look at the research and use a home TDCS unit and actually apply that today? Or have we got still a little way to go in terms of, let's just take that specific application right there. Well, I would say TDCS at present is a very nice, kind of cute, kind of interesting laboratory trick that under specific controlled conditions, we can demonstrate it has an effect. And we select out lots of variants in the studies. So for example, if somebody hasn't eaten normally, we reschedule them. Or if somebody had a big night out last night and they're a little hungover, we reschedule them. If somebody says they have some either brain disease or are taking some drug that might influence the brain, we don't allow them into the study. So. When we do our studies, we try to operate in as pure a space as possible. And I don't think there's a single example yet of the application of TDCS or any other brain stimulation technology in a population that takes all comers, regardless of the issues that they bring through the door, whether it be you know, addiction or ADHD or tiredness or a hangover. I don't think there's a single study that takes all comers and still demonstrates a good effect. That's important for the DIY market and consumer market because it has to have its effect when anybody comes through the door. If you buy one and it doesn't have an effect, you're going to be upset. That's a hurdle that has to be jumped before we're ready for the consumer market, I think. Yeah. There's a DIY TDCS movement that started up just recently. Right? I actually heard you talk on one of their podcasts. Versus before that, there's, there's basically a few companies selling units. What is the difference between those? Is DIY more about constructing your own units and kind of figuring out the positionings versus in the units that were bought before they were basically set up for the consumer market? And so they've been pre-established by some companies and with a bit of research backing. Yeah, there are a couple companies through which you can buy TDCS units now. There's not a single company who has validated the device or their technology that doesn't exist. I mean, if they, these are literally people, I'm, I'm biased here. So you've got <laughs> to take into account that I'm biased. And I'm biased for two reasons. First reason, the devices that are out there don't take care of the electrode skin interface. I have the scars on my arm to prove that you can do this in a dumb way and hurt yourself. So I can look at my forearm now and I can count. As we were trying to generate good technique with electrodes, I can count six scars on my wrist where I burned myself very badly. The electrode skin interface is critical to take care of or you're going to scar yourself up. And that's not good. The second reason I'm biased against DIY home use 
is that the devices that are available have not been run through any studies for safety or effectiveness. And so I really worry that because we don't have documented safety, effectiveness, and feasibility, that what is really going to happen is there's going to be a bunch of people who buy, fail to get their desired effect, burn themselves, and it affects the ability of other people who are, are being careful to move forward to get this technology into the hands of consumers and patients and other interested parties that might be able to benefit from this. Great. So to kind of go with that, what kind of advice would you give to someone who's interested in playing around with this? Is there any safe way to do it now? Because we're talking about safety here. Yep. Um, so safety concerns. And I guess most people are going to be a little bit wary of applying electricity to their brains beyond skin burns. We talked about skin burns. Could there be potential other damage? That you, right. Say you stimulate the wrong areas or maybe you, do some of these units enable you to turn the charge up higher? And is that something that could cause some kind of brain interruption? I'm not going to say damage here is a big word, but could it cause some kind of issue for you? I believe that's possible. So there's an act. I just came from a conference in New York last week. And there's an active debate in the community whether electrical brain stimulation is more like caffeine, where, eh, let it go, let's see what happens, or more like a cigarette, where you you let it go, you see what happens, and you'll discover down the road that you might not have done something correctly or you might have hurt some people. What is it? Is it more like caffeine? Is it more like a cigarette? There's not a single study right now, not one, that has done imaging long-term stimulation with TDCS and then brain imaging again to find out if the technique ultimately does cause changes in the brain that we might that might be deleterious we just don't know so we got to be careful with that what i would say to the DIY community is that long-term study doesn't exist the other thing i would say to the DIY community is the exact same thing i said to people on the I met in Los Angeles a while back with people for the Olympic team, pole vaulting team in particular. And they were asking if we could use TDCS to enhance performance because little did I know, but I guess pole vaulting is one of the most cognitively demanding sports uh, in track and field where you have to put a giant sequence of things that are done perfectly together in order to get a good pole vault. Well, I'm guessing also in terms of neuromuscular activation, TDCS could be helping increase your strength, basically, by by enhancing neuromuscular activation. Is that part of that too? Well, it reduces your perceived effort. That helps with things like fatigue. But what I said to him was, what do you want to ingrain in your brain? Is it the case that if you have a bad pole vault, do you want that to stick? My guess is no. But if you have a good pole vault, you want that to stick. So I worry that right now, given our level of understanding, if you just put it on somebody's head and they go pole vaulting, what if you make bad technique stick and be hard to get over? You might actually hurt your Olympic team or your Olympic athletes. Uh, You might decrease their performance instead of increase it. And so I was pretty dubious about that. I was. I said, I don't think we're ready to do this with you guys. I'm sorry. That's a great example. And it sounds like it, it connects with the argument that's currently going on in neurofeedback at the same time. Yes. Because they're asking like, okay, so we don't actually, we're not sure of where we're going. So there's different neurofeedback technologies. There's some that just try to enhance what you have, 
kind of like help your brain to know what it's doing. And then there's others which are kind of pointing in a direction. And people are a bit nervous about the ones pointing in a direction, which I guess is what you're saying is like, I don't know which direction we should, in most of these applications, we should be pointing the brain. You know, should we be activating this more? We're making an educated guess with the Meg and the other technologies right now. How confident do you feel in, in those applications? Or are you going to be feeling this as a research and potentially a medical use where people are actually going to get big benefits? It's not just going from healthy to performance increase, but it's you know, I've got some health issue, I've got some brain issue, and maybe I could get back to normal. So that's generally where technologies start, because it's in a more extreme, kind of desperate situation, and there's a bigger upside to using a technology. It's like, am I going to be a little bit non-functional for the rest of my life, or am I potentially going to get back to normal functioning? Uh, so could you highlight what your opinion on, on that is? However you decide to alter your brain, there's no free lunch, right? So there's very good data out of Roy Cohen Kadash's lab at Oxford, that if you apply TDCS to enhance mathematical ability in one field or in one, uh, one type of math, you decrease your ability to do a different kind of math. And that is potentially an issue in the case that how would you best apply this for your specific application? Well, in the DIY market, you don't even have this choice. What you've got is one electrode configuration, one type of electrode, one recommended spot on your head. You don't even have the freedom to apply this to your specific, the specific situation that you would like to change. So I worry that, you know, what's out there now, especially for the DIY market, is gimmicky and quirky and maybe dangerous. Maybe I mean, there's very little in the way of harm. The side effects are very low with TDCS. But I worry that there's always somebody that's going to be pushing that limit. And in pushing that limit and having limited options, maybe go, turning the current twice as high, using it twice as often, et cetera, you're going to have somebody who uh, hurts themselves and then and we all feel bad about that. Nobody, that's all. It's just nobody feels good about that. All right. Great. Thanks. All right. So case where someone is going to do this at home anyway, they're listening to this interview, which I'm sure there's people out there because I see a lot of talk about TDCS and one of my buddies has been playing around with it. So if they were going to track something that might help them to know it's actually improving versus worsening what they're up to, is, are there any biomarkers or anything like that you would advise they watch so that they can tell if it's, it's probably a positive versus a negative or is there is it kind of very difficult because it's quite task specific so you kind of need to look at whatever the task is and try and measure somehow that you're getting better or worse at it so i would say there's two things that we know we're fairly close to clinical application on one is depression so you might want to have somebody monitor their mood and do mood ratings every day to find out if when they use tdcs does it uh, alter their mood. And I would say the other thing that you might have somebody do is to monitor their perceived effort. So let's say that you go to the gym and you get home and you feel awful and you can't, you decide you get old and fat like I am. You go to the gym and you get, you're tired and sore and don't feel so good the next day. So does it change? Does your willingness to return to the gym does that change when you use TDCS or your willingness to engage in a task that's difficult for you? Does that change? And pay attention to that kind of stuff. I hope that 
if you are going to go ahead and use this against my recommendations, I do not recommend this at all. You do it very carefully, take care of your electrode skin interface and monitor something that we know for a fact has, well, we know that in a carefully selected population, we can have a meaningful effect. Thank you. They strike me as very meaningful measures, which could hopefully avoid them going backwards for a long time if it actually does turn out negative and hopefully give them some positive feedback. In terms of this whole area, where do you see it going in the next five or 10 years or where would you hope it goes? I hope a couple of things. So first, I hope that companies like, there's a company called Think that is going to come out with a consumer device for electrical brain stimulation here within the next couple of months. And so I hope that Think's safety record is as stellar as they hope it will be. I also think that you're going to have combined therapies or closed loop therapies that are going to lead the field. So let's say that somebody is sitting there at their computer and when we monitor their eye movement, what we notice is that their eyes are not paying attention to task. And so we could turn on TDCS in order to help them stay engaged with task when we notice that that's a, that they're deviating from a task. I think those are applications that might come. So especially, I hope that the safety is good because I know people are going to push it out there whether we like it or not. And I hope that uh, people start thinking about ways to put the stimulation in a closed loop to help people when they need help and turn it off when people are doing fine. Great, thanks. What's the most exciting thing you think in terms of opportunities? So you looked at the downsides there and hoping that the downside, I can see, you know, you're like, oh, I hope this doesn't cause a mess. So what would be the upsides over the next five or 10 years for you if you were to get involved in research or some of your projects were to, to work well and maybe develop over the next 10 years? What would be the exciting opportunities for you? God, I would say that the traumatic brain injury work really has me quite excited. So in traumatic brain injury, there really is no good therapy. There is a whole lot of try it a different way, take this drug to deal with problem A, take a different drug to deal with problem B, take a third drug to deal with problem C, and hope that those drugs interact in a way that's friendly and works. Something else like um, multiple sclerosis. I mean, really no good treatment. I keep hoping that one of these brain stimulation technologies is really going to enter that space and make a difference for people right now that really have no, no good treatment available. Have you seen structural change influenced by TDCS? So like if you've stimulated an area for a while, has it say if, if it had atrophied a little bit, would you potentially see some de-atrophying or growing back or anything like that? We've seen white matter changes with TDCS. So white matter changes are the wires that connect different pieces of the brain and it looks to strengthen them. So white matter is myelin? White matter is axons that are coated with myelin. So it's part of the neuron that's coated with myelin. And so it looks like the myelin coating is getting stronger. Now, this is not yet verified by a lot of studies, but I had a conversation with a researcher from Harvard last Sunday night. They have seen similar things to what's going on in our lab in uh, Dayton, Ohio. So we're actively working together to see if we can understand better how we might be affecting myelin and white matter using TDCS. Right. But there's no gray matter changes. Not that we've seen. Okay, great. Not that we've seen. So in terms of someone at home learning more about the types of uh, TDCS and potentially some of the other things you've been talking about today, 
Where would you direct them to? What would be good sources of information where they could learn more and get more into depth, especially if they're going to potentially use this, thinking about using this? Is there anywhere you would direct them to learn more? Uh, well, if it's a DIY person, there's a website called DIY TDCS, and it has a whole bunch of audio interviews and blogs by a guy who really does keep up pretty amazingly with the literature. I can't keep up with the literature, total, <laughs> but this guy does a great job. So there's a great deal of information there. There's some good interviews by a lot of real top flight scientists. So that's a good reference. And I would pay attention to the idea that every single person who is on there, that who's a, a top flight scientist worries that this is going to hurt somebody at this point and that we need to be very careful. I mean, it sounds a little bit comparable to nootropics. There's a wide variety of nootropics out there today, and we don't know the long-term effects of them. Some, And for many of them, sometimes it's even anecdotal. Some people say it work, they say work, and sometimes people say they don't. Would you compare it to nootropics? I don't know how much you know about nootropics, but it's another approach to stimulating and changing, and another approach, chemistry, rather than stimulation. But would you say it's as risky or potentially the same? Well, I would say nootropics is not a new idea, right? I, th I would say caffeine is nootropic. Mm. So is it the same? Is it different? I would say people are often pushing the limits of their capability and would like to be able to go that one more step. And so in that sense, the I think the nootropics and the brain stimulation stuff are really partial of the same desire of individuals to better themselves and to be able to push that one more step. And so I'm all about that. I just think that we need to approach it in a reasoned and careful way. Great, great, thanks. Rounding off the interview, I'd love to get to know a little bit more about you. You know, you've obviously taken a very rigorous approach to this area. How about yourself? Are there any data metrics uh, that you track for your own body on a routine basis to gain insights or improve health, longevity, performance, or any other concerns? Yeah, I wear a band on my wrist all the time that tells me about my steps and tells me about, and it also does actigraphy that gives you some insight into sleep. And I use that. I look at it every day. I download the information. It looks like I'm reaching about half my goal all the time instead of my the goal I should be shooting for. I see you smiling there. So it sounds like you're happy that you're meeting those goals. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's better than zero. And it also, it kind of helps you think about being more healthy. It kind of prompts you. So my wife and I are very much, we, the little town we live in has uh, restaurants that are about a mile and a half away, a grocery store is about a mile and a half away. And we often walk to the restaurant or walk to the grocery store. And I'm not sure we would have done that if I didn't have this little thing on my wrist bugging me all the time saying, hey, get out of your chair and go do something. So I use that kind of thing. I mean, we all use devices that help us regulate our activity. I mean, one that's a very simple example is an alarm clock. It aids in your sleep-wake cycle. Another thing that people often use is a meal at a scheduled time that helps them to set the tempo of their day or set their, just set the day up so that they are meeting expectations. So there's all kinds of these little things that we use, that we monitor, that we impose upon ourselves in order to help us get to where we want to be. Great. Can I ask which tracker are you using on your wrist there? Yeah, I use the original Polar Loop. 
That's what I usually. That's what I typically use, and I used it just because it. I thought it had the best cosmetic appearance. That was the whole. <laughs> <laughs> it was the least obtrusive, least clunky looking. That's true. A lot of them do look a bit clunky. I guess where that's where Apple's trying to come into the market to declunkinize it. <laughs> well, <laughs> Apple's Apple's had a history of doing that well when they lead. I'm not sure they have a great history of doing that when they follow. So we'll see how that all works yeah, out. Yeah. In terms of uh, TDCS, actually, I mean, do you, have you used TDCS yourself? Is it something you apply to yourself, or are you basically, I'm, I'm not going to use, <laughs> I'm not going to use this technology. It's far too dangerous. <laughs> I put it on my head uh, for demos and. I've put it on my head to test paradigms. I will not do anything to a subject that I wouldn't do myself. It sounds like you've done a lot then. I've probably had it on my head 50, 60 times for sure. I do not use it if I need to focus to get something done. And I do not use it if I wake up in the morning and I'm super tired and I think I need a boost. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I'm not afraid of it at all. I put it on my head, stimulated in multiple different ways to try to basically reassure myself that I wasn't going to do something stupid to some other human being. That's a, that's a great attitude. I'm guessing you've got the unit that has good electrodes that aren't going to burn you now. Uh, we've developed some electrodes that have never caused a burn. As a matter of fact, the electrodes cause such a little bit of skin reaction that not too long ago we did a demonstration on a film crew that came from New York on a, from a place called Vocative. And when we took the electrodes off, the skin was a little bit red. And I said uh, to one of my graduate students, take this gel and test it. I think the gel is going bad. And in fact, it was. Is that something you could license? Is that a technology that you need to license to other companies or... Well, we've applied for a patent for that stuff. And so we are, and I actually am in active discussions to do some of that kind of stuff. Okay, last question here. What would be your number one recommendation to someone trying to use some form of data to make better decisions about their body's health, performance, longevity? I would say, I think about this all the time, and I actually regularly do this, is when I get up in the morning, have a standard routine, and just kind of meditate for a few minutes or think like through your body, top to bottom, how am I feeling today? What are the things that I could do better if I wanted to feel a little differently? So it's almost like a self-check, right? Like you're doing a system test. Don't get up the last minute, run out the door, find out 10 minutes into your drive that you have a headache or you your guts don't feel right today. But get up, have a nice standard breakfast and just kind of think through from top of your head to the tip of your toes about how you're feeling today and what would be the thing that you might do today to make yourself feel better tomorrow. That's great. So is that actually a meditative, kind of semi-meditative practice or are you just being quiet and just trying to be internally focused and try and see what's up, being self-aware kind of thing? Or is it a focusing on your breathing, using one of the techniques, or is it just kind of your own like mindfulness, trying to be aware of your body? I think it's very much mindfulness. So just yesterday I went out and chopped wood for three hours. So this morning I get up and I'm a little sore and I think to myself, where am I sore? Why am I sore? And it turns out for God knows what reason, my hands are the things that are really the sorest from gripping the stupid axe handle while it was wet. And so I, when I think about this, what I think about is now, well, I should stretch my hands. I should be careful to make sure that I'm not repeating that same kind of motion today if I can avoid it. 
just making sure that you think it through what's the step you are going to take to make it better and then actually carry it out. Great. Thank you, Michael. I actually start my day with something similar, or at least I try to. I don't succeed every day. I don't know if you're better at that than me, but some phases when I'm more stable, when I'm traveling a lot, it really tends to suffer. Now I'm just kind of getting back into it and it really makes a difference for me too, just a, a similar practice to yours. So yeah, I can vouch for that from personal experience also. Thank you for the wealth of information. Also all the tips on safety, being practical about this and just your, your depth of information today. It's been super insightful. Thank you very much. Oh, no problem. I'm glad to help. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.